Welcome to the fourth episode of Break the Case. This episode is going to be a little different from our other ones and features a conversation I recently had with Francine Bardol, a DNA expert. This podcast is truly an investigative podcast happening in real time. We're thrilled that there have been some significant movements in Debbie's case, but we can't quite share those publicly yet. In the meantime, we're going to bring you an episode on a fascinating advancement in DNA technology that we believe could truly change the course of this case and so many other cold cases out there. This technology is cutting edge and is still unknown to some law enforcement agencies in our country. In our last episode, we discussed our visit to Lubbock, during which we learned of the evidentiary items collected in Debbie's case. Since then, we started looking for options to present to the Lubbock PD for retesting all of that evidence with the goal of finding the killer's DNA. Naturally, one potential problem with this evidence is that it's 46 years old. So even if it was meticulously preserved, there's probably been some degradation, and that's not unusual. Nor does it mean that the piece of evidence is unusable. DNA analysis technology has advanced incredibly in just the last few years, making it possible to detect minute samples to include individual human skin cells. We wanted to find out the viability of retesting some of the evidence in Debbie's case and what the chances of finding the killer's DNA. So I reached out to Francine Bardol, who already has a full-time career in law enforcement and now owns her own DNA lab. She specializes in extracting DNA from difficult items of evidence. So I called her up to talk about the DNA technology she has perfected and actually improved upon. As a reminder to listeners, this discussion contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries, including sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Francine, it's really good to talk with you today, and I appreciate you taking some time to chat with me over the phone and provide some discussion on Debbie's case. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jen. Thank you. So why don't we start with your background and how you got into law enforcement, what your experience is through the years in terms of law enforcement, and then also your expertise in DNA extraction and analysis. All right. Well, it it's a long story because I've been doing this for a long time, but I started out um, working at Salt Lake City County Old Metro Jail doing pretrial recommendations and releases. I would call up victims and talk to them about um, how the crime has affected their life. And I found it very interesting that the victims would often express how they'd been ignored. They felt like nobody was listening to them. I had to try to explain to them what I'm doing to give them a voice to be able to at least address the court. So I had the opportunity to apply for a job with West Jordan City Police Department part-time as a crime scene technician. And this was before CSI was really big. It was just starting. And I remember they wanted you know, all this experience and degrees and stuff, but the pay was really bad. But I didn't care about the pay as much as I cared about knowing what victims went through. So I took the job. I found it really interesting when I went to a crime scene and to see exactly what victims went through is unbelievable. And it really made me start looking more at what I could do to help them. So um, as time went on, a job opening came with West Jordan Police Department for a full-time crime scene technician. And I really enjoyed what I was doing. And I thought, I'm going to go for this. I found that 
just being able to see from the onset of a crime, I've worked with defendants and I've worked with victims. I've worked in the criminal justice system for over 35, 40 years. I got to see a full circle and I became very interested uh, in what I could do to help these families and help law enforcement get the answers that they needed to solve a crime. And so one of the things that was really up and coming was DNA. When I started at West Jordan, in order to have a a complete DNA profile, you'd need a blood sample about the size of a quarter. When I left, which was just about a year ago, it was much smaller than a pinhead. So things have changed immensely and I became very interested in DNA. And uh, so one of the things that I was really fortunate to be told about was the MVAC. And this was uh, a very new technology that I heard about. And lucky for me, the MVAC company was in Utah. And so I asked them to bring it to West Jordan so we could see how it worked. And uh, they did bring it uh, to West Jordan Police Department. And I was truly amazed at this technology. It, it's like a little carpet cleaner, you know, when you do your carpet, how it sprays out a solution and then uh, you suck up that water that you sprayed out and it goes into the container on your uh, carpet cleaner. And it's kind of like that, only you spray a sterile solution on an item of evidence that's porous and it sucks it up. It has a vacuum in it where it sucks it up and puts it in a sterile container that those skin cells that were stuck on that item of evidence are now floating in this sterile solution. And then we could pour it through a filter to capture those skin cells because inside those skin cells is your DNA, is the nucleus, your DNA. And so this was really amazing. And I remember thinking, wow, this, this is before its time because it, it was just amazing. And I was able to uh, have a chief that believed in it. Uh, we were able to buy the MVAC and we were the first law enforcement agency, I believe, in the United States to buy the MVAC. And it has been phenomenal. It was just wonderful. It's helped solve many cases. And so this is one of the, the newer technologies that needs to, to be told about for the families and law enforcement that is available to get touch DNA because you don't see touch DNA. So that's uh, kind of how I got involved with DNA and the uh, excitement of what it has to offer and to help solve cases. And then as time went on, we'd send things to our lab shell casings, spent shell casings, so we could get maybe hopefully a fingerprint or we could kind of figure out whose gun this was or who did this shooting. And we always got the same results back. They don't get enough off of a shell casing for DNA. And the world for a long time has been looking for how to get DNA off of spent shell casings. And so I started doing a lot of research and looking at things under microscopes and and trying to figure out what would be the best way. And I was finally able to crack that and figure it out. So I developed what is called the Bardol method. And uh, I am the only one that is authorized to use this method uh, at this point in time, but it is able to get DNA off of spent shell casings, jewelry, fingernails, anything that's small that's really difficult to get things off of. A lot of law enforcement agencies are not aware of this. And um, I'll just give you an example. I did a case not too long ago, just three shell casings. I got a full profile to go into CODIS. And so there is DNA on those shell casings. And so if I get them before the lab gets them, if I get them before they're touched or processed, I can get you good results. So for example, if someone had jewelry on, somebody that was murdered had jewelry on and there was an altercation and they might have have defense wounds on them and, and they might have put up a fight. 
odds are pretty good. They might have some of the suspect DNA on their ring or their bracelet or their watch or some sort of jewelry that they had on hair ties. They pulled them by the hair and the hair tie came out, little things like that. So my interest for DNA just got bigger and it's still growing because I got other ideas and uh, I just find it a very exciting world. So give the listeners a little idea of the difference between the type of evidence that you would use the MVAC on and the type of evidence that you would use your Bardot method on. Okay, sure. For example, we have a murder that we're going to be talking about anyway, and their clothing. And we know by looking at the crime scene photos that clothing has been moved or touched by the suspect. Say their, their shirt was pulled up. We would use the MVAC on the bottom part of their shirt because we know the suspect had to have held onto that to pull it up. And so you want to look at that and porous items such as rocks. MVAC did a wonderful job on the Crystal Blasanovich case, and that can be found on the MVAC website, M-VAC, V-A-C, like a vacuum. And it was able to get DNA off of a rock that had been used to kill a, a young girl. She was 17. And they kept that rock for many years until something came up because we usually don't collect rocks because they haven't been able to get DNA off of them that would be of any probative value. You can't cut a rock necessarily. And the medical examiner in Utah was wise enough to say, hey, you need to collect this rock. And they did. And using the MVAC on a, a granite rock, get the suspect's DNA and a arrest them. Angie Dodge case out of Idaho Falls is another one. There was a man put in prison for over 20 years that was innocent. And we were able to get that evidence and we were able to get him exonerated from prison because none of his DNA was on anything. So the MVAC works really well on clothing, on rocks. It, it works on porous items that swabbings are what they usually use in laboratories. So you take a swab and you'll swab the top of the item. But keep in mind that skin cells are jaggedy. They're not nice, smooth little cells and they get hooked into the weave and they get hooked into the fabric. So a swabbing doesn't necessarily get all the skin cells that are there. And the MVAC is able to kind of soak it, this sterile solution, uh, and then suck it up with the vacuum and get more DNA. And the FBI has done research on this and it's, it, it's just phenomenal how well the MVAC is able to get more DNA off of things. So pretty much porous items like that. Now the Bardot method would be smaller items. Let's take fingernails, for example. Whether it's scrapings or clippings, it's tiny bits, not a lot, and they usually swab those or they'll use the scrapings and they'll do their process through those. But the Bardol method is able to soak them and be able to trap those uh, skin cells onto the filter. Same with zip ties, the same with tape. We've done wonderful things with old tape that has been crumbly and just terrible. We've been able to use the MVAC and the Bardol method because I've done it on smaller items as well. Jewelry, another one, shell casings, live rounds. Uh, I do really well on firearm components, such as the ones that we know that the suspect had to have handled. Grips on firearms usually have a lot of DNA, but they're coming up with some great stuff now to unmix those mixtures. So if you have a whole bunch of different people on that grip of that firearm, now they're coming up with ways to unmix those mixtures where you can say exactly who it belongs to. So I use the Bardot method on smaller things, and it's really done really well, especially on the shell casings and jewelry uh, and fingernails. It does really well, but there's just so many things. If you can't swab it, you can't get into those little crevices, I can. And so that's what that's for. That's fantastic. And you, you alluded to Debbie's case, which we'll get into more specifics on that in a minute. But let me just um, make sure I have 
your method straight in my head. So your method involves the use of a sterile solution in a container, correct? And then the evidentiary item is placed into that solution? Yes, it's placed into the solution. And then there's several steps that you have to take in order to get it. It's a long process, but you do them one at a time so as not to, to destroy it. And you'll make sure they're all dry so you can give them back to the law enforcement agency. And then the law enforcement agency can give it to their lab to put into the shell casing database, which is called NIBIN. And they can match up to see if that shell casing has been fired from the same firearm somewhere else in that area or where it's being used. But all that solution, that whole solution is poured through a filter so that those skin cells can be trapped. Right. And then you can analyze those and uncover the DNA profile of the perpetrator, correct? Right. So what I do is I'm not a DNA analyst because I I am specializing in the extraction of DNA from the items of evidence. There's several labs that I work with. One that is doing really well that I've been working with is Pure Gold Forensics out of Redlands, California on my shell casings, and they've done an excellent job. And I'll send the filters to them. And then they're the ones that will take the filters and then break open the skin cells and get the extracts to run through DNA testing. And I think in a previous conversation, you mentioned that they have access to CODIS, correct? They do. They have. A, they are an established, accredited lab. They have access to CODIS. So in terms of Debbie's case, uh, we know that they collected the clothing off her body, and that included her blue jeans, her underwear, her blouse, and her bra. And as most listeners already know, Debbie's killer definitely touched those items because her blue jeans and underwear were pulled down and her blouse and bra were pushed up. So what do you think the probative value is of that clothing today in terms of being analyzed by the MBAC? Do you think there's a pretty good chance of success in finding the killer's DNA on there? Oh, absolutely. I do think there is a very good chance of success with this, especially on the blue jeans. So let's think. They were pulled down. The underwear was pulled down with the blue jeans, so we know that the suspect had to have touched those to pull them down, so we would focus on those areas that we believe the suspect touched to pull them down. Same with the shirt and the bra. You know that they touched it, so that's a given. We're going to go look for those. Now, your issue is going to be on whose DNA is it. For sure, there's going to be suspect DNA, but we want to know more prior to this murder We want to hear all the details. What was going on prior to this? Was there anything else happening in her life? Was there any other issues going on? Was there any friends or somebody upset with her? But what's really important also, so you know whose DNA is possibly there, so you have some suspect DNA you can match this to, is who are our suspects? Who are the people that may have had reason or been upset or whatever to murder this young girl? She'd only been married, what, about 10 weeks? That's correct, yes. So very short time. Yes. And so why, you know, and so we want to know whose DNA is on there. So you've got to kind of narrow your pool down and start seeing who are our strong suspects so that when you do get this DNA, you're able to say, okay, this matches their DNA. Correct. Theirs is on here and it shouldn't be on there or should it be on there? Right. So there's a lot of questions. For instance, it wouldn't be unnatural to find her husband at the Times DNA on her clothing because they live together, right? Exactly. They do live together. 
when it comes to something where you have a family member that you live with that could possibly be a suspect, yeah, their DNA could be on there. And if he hugged her before they left or whatever, those are the stories you want to know, though. So there's a lot of questions, but definitely we would expect that to be there. But where would it be? Right. Say if they said, well, you know, they share the same couch, but these were clean clothes she had on and she sat down on the couch. So we find, say, husband's DNA from where she sat down on the couch. But would we find the husband's DNA on the underwear that's pulled down if those were clean and he probably never touched her and she showered before she put on those? So there's a lot of different variables. Exactly. And in Debbie's case, actually, we might have a big advantage, which is that we know she changed clothes from the last time that she did see her husband that evening. She had been at his place of work with her family eating and she had worn a white pantsuit that she had sewn herself. And when she was found, she was in a completely different outfit. So actually that might play to our advantage with this DNA testing. Absolutely. Yep. Good point. Debbie, we know she put up one heck of a fight against her killer and she was found with three rings on her fingers, her wedding ring, her class ring from high school, and then her promise ring. So what do you think the chances of examining those rings and, and finding the killer's DNA there? If, let's say, we were able to recover those rings even today, do you think there's a possibility of finding that foreign DNA? Definitely. I think it would be worth a try. The thing is about putting up a fight, sometimes you scratch them. And those fingernail scrapings, these type of things can produce stuff. All these rings, they have little crevices in them, just like a shell casing. They've got little nooks and crannies. And and putting up a fight, you bet. I really think there could be yeah. something on there. I, I, I really do. DNA does degrade over time, but things are getting so much better, even working well with degraded DNA. So there's that high possibility we could. Yeah. And um, you mentioned the fingernail scrapings, and we know that they did take a scraping under each of Debbie's 10 fingernails. And so <laughs> I'm optimistic that that can be retested and that may hold the answer right there. I did some fingernail scrapings not too long ago on another case and we got really good results off yeah. of the scrapings. I did uh, work on some of West Jordan's cases um, and w I went to the state lab and I watched how they were doing it and they're swabbing these fingernail clippings. And if you have ever gone to an autopsy or seen them take any fingernail clippings, very seldom are the fingernails that long. Now, some women do have longer fingernails, but usually they're small. And so they're little slivers of fingernails. Yes. And try to swab that and get as much DNA as you can. That's really difficult. Yes. And the swab does act as a filter and it's wet and it tries to get as much as it can. But if you do my method on it, you're going to get a lot more and, and get better results. Not to mention that because you pour the solution through a filter, it moves across the filter so there's more even distribution of it. When you're doing um, swabbing, you better make sure you're turning that swab around or you're getting it all over because don't forget, they cut that swabbing and you're just hoping they're cutting it at the right place <laughs> to get enough DNA. Yes, it's becoming more of an, I don't want to say outdated, but <clears throat> an older method to use. I'll just name a few other pieces of evidence in Debbie's case. They collected three bricks which sounds like would be ideal for mm -hmm. using the MBAC method on. Were those the ones found on the porch or what? Yes, next to her body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think definitely that would be really worth it. Mm -hmm. And then her puzzle book was also found kind of underneath her, actually, partially underneath her body, but definitely had blood on it. And it wasn't like an overly, it wasn't as thick as a book, you know, it was much thinner. The best thing I can equate it to is like a magazine. And it was about that size, too. It was... It's a pretty big size, actually. Well, yeah, and, and so I have gotten DNA off of paper. So example would be 
a bank robbery. Mm-hmm. They'd grab a little piece of paper from home, give me all your money, write it down and give it to the teller. I've gotten DNA of paper towels. If it was a slick cover, if it was a, there's really no porous, I would think it would be better for fingerprints. Mm-hmm. But if there's other things that could have captured the skin cell or skin cells could have, you know, uh, embedded in, you know, a seam or whatever, yeah, it could be worth it. Worth a try, I figure. Yeah. It'll be 46 years later, really, what is there to lose? <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, usually what I do is uh, I do consulting on cold cases, and we make a list of all the items of evidence. So like in Debbie's case, you've got the blue jeans, the panties, the shirt, the bra, the fingernails, and all these things. And so what we do is we take these and, and we look at the photographs of the crime scene. And older older crime scenes don't tend to have a lot of photos. Some of them are so old they faded because 35 millimeter film, you know, it'll fade. But if you can see the crime scene, you can kind of get a really good idea on what you think would be the best item. So in Debbie's case, the blue jeans and the panties for sure, the bra and the shirt for sure, because we know they touched them. So what's going to be the most probative? I'm saying I think the most probative would be that it take more tugging and more lifting. You know, pulling would be the underwear and the Levi's. Sure. So I would definitely put those on the top of my list. And so you go through this until you make a list and you go from the most probative to the least and you start hitting those. A lot of laboratories They'll have you send your items in and they'll do them all. And here's the problem is, let's say, for example, you got 20 items of evidence and you send it to a laboratory to not only try to extract it, whether they use swabbing or MVAC or cuttings or whatever they do. Then after that, they have to do the extracts and then the DNA testing. And so there's a lot of steps to this. And you could spend thousands of dollars on all these items when, in fact, I think it's a great idea. This is just my stand that you're much better off helping the law enforcement agency. Let's start with the first three or four items and see what we get, because if we get our answers from those, then we don't need to spend thousands of dollars on the rest. Right, exactly. And so this is what law enforcement, they run up against this a lot. There's two issues. Number one is. It's not that they don't want to do a good job. And in Debbie's case, for back then, I think they did the best they could. Mm-hmm. Blood typing. That's what they used to do. That's why there's a lot of people that are innocent in prison is because that's how a lot of them were convicted, is blood typing. And then as time went on, then DNA became available. And so law enforcement, a lot of them don't know what technologies are available. How are they supposed to know? How do they get that information? And they're so busy with their cases, they really depend on their labs to inform them of what's going on, but that's not happening. So what they have to do is they have to try to connect with each other or word of mouth or reading in a magazine or something. And and a lot of them don't have the time to do a lot of that. So it would really behoove the police agencies to have somebody that stays up on this and kind of acts as a liaison between the lab and them so they understand what's available and what can be done with stuff. The other issue is technology has changed. They need to be caught up on what there is. There's so many law enforcement agencies that will talk to me and say, I never heard of this technology. How come I've never heard of this? What does this do? Because they have no idea. And the other one is the funding. People think they have this unlimited pool of money that they can draw from. And especially your rural communities, they don't have this. They don't have all the forensic experts. They don't have all the technology and they don't have the unlimited funding. So there has to be a way for them to be able to help solve these cases and move ahead without breaking the bank. 
So there's a lot of things that need to be taken into consideration. But I will say that there are many places that are willing to help out as much as they can with stuff. I know that there's places that will consult and have experts that are free that they will hook you up with so you can talk to them because they want to help solve these cases. And so reaching out to people and working as a team is going to be your biggest advantage because if you try to just do it within your own walls, you know what your limitations are and you can't go further than those walls. Absolutely. So you need to reach out. And actually nobody has your technology except you right now, correct? Yep, that's right. Cell phones, computers, vehicle data, security cameras, all digital evidence during the investigation of a crime. Today's investigators have to understand how to analyze and solve modern day cases. That's why American Military University is on the cutting edge of criminal justice education with its Bachelors of Science in Digital Forensics. Classes are online with monthly program starts. Learn more at amuonline.com slash forensics. So quickly tell us, in terms of chain of custody, because you are not within a traditional law enforcement agency, you're independent, how does your lab adhere to the chain of custody? Let us know your process for that. Well, chain of custody is really important. Now, we'll go back to the O.J. Simpson case, and that was where chain of custody was not followed. And this brought a lot of attention to chain of custody. So chain of custody for my lab is sometimes they'll bring the evidence to me. I mean, I've had them fly it out. I've had them drive it out. But you can send it overnight mail. I like FedEx because they're pretty well on time and they've done really well. I have them send me the tracking number. I follow it pick it up and let them know it's been picked up. And I sign that chain of custody letter and I scan it and email it back to them so they know it's been there. Stays in an evidence room that only I have access to. Nobody else can get into there and it's protected. And I am the only one that can touch it. And I process that evidence and I send the stuff back to the law enforcement agency once I finished. And then I send the filters that I do. And I transfer the evidence FedEx overnight to Pure Gold. They let me know they got it. And then they handle their DNA testing and then send everything that's left over back to the police department. So chain of custody is very tight. Absolutely. And so to be clear, if you send something to say Pure Gold, that's just the DNA you've extracted, correct? Not the physical evidence that was tested? That's right. So it'll just be the filters. The Mm -hmm. DNA will be on the filters. The evidence, say the clothing, goes back to the police department. Correct. So the clothing goes to one place, which is you, and then directly back. And that's it. Okay. And in general, what's your turnaround on a process like this? Like, say we got you Debbie's clothing next week. What would be your prediction on the turnaround time, assuming that you were able to extract some DNA from it and then send those filters to pure gold? I try to get it back within 30 business days, and so does Pure Gold Forensics, 30 business days. Here's the thing I like about what I do and what Pure Gold does. A lot of laboratories have different people handling each step of the process, okay? And there's a lot of steps to these processes. Mm -hmm. Once I have the evidence and I start processing it, it's a time-consuming process. It's not something that's real fast, like vacuuming your carpet or something, because you have to look at the photographs, you have to determine where you're going to focus your efforts because you pay so much a filter and you don't want to use a ton of filters. You want to make sure you're really going into the areas that you know are the most probative. So for example, on Debbie's, 
definitely the blue jeans, the waistband, the the underwear, the waistband, they pulled them down. So those are the areas you want to focus on. Then you have to take photographs. I want to make sure it's documented um, and photographs and everything is done. And then once I do that, then I'll start backing and I make notes and I keep my notes and I do my supplement on that. And then after that is all done, then I dry it. It has to be dried and it has to be repackaged and then it has to be sent back to the agency. I also have the filters that have to be dried. They have to be sealed. They have to be packaged and sent to Pure Gold Forensics. I handle all that. There isn't 20 people or two people or three people doing this. And then once I send it to Pure Gold, this is what I really like about their lab is it's one case, one scientist. I don't have to go through a bunch of other people to find out what's happening with this case. How much DNA did I have on that filter? We call that quant. So before I would move ahead, say, for DNA testing, if there wasn't enough DNA on that filter, I'm not going to say, oh, we'll go ahead and test it just in case. If there's not enough, we can still have that extract. Quant is an extract. It's been cleaned up and it's ready to go for testing. You can still hang on to that tell something better that can handle that lower quant will work. But once you get to that point, you want to know, do I have enough DNA to move forward? And so I only have to talk to one scientist to find that out. And she does all the work. You know, it's Susanna Ryan, she's the one of the pure gold that does that. And she sees it through completely. So there's only two people seeing this through. When you go to another lab, you're going to have three or four. Right. So it, it just makes it cleaner. Communication is huge. There are some labs, there's no communication. I mean, they'll say, give me your evidence and I'll let you know when it's all done. And so it all gets done and and you'll get something, oh, it's inconclusive. If you were to ask law enforcement agencies, how many inconclusive cases do they have? I'll bet the number's huge. And I'm telling you that those cases can be readdressed. Yes. They can be looked at again. There's just still stuff to be, you know, done. But there are some labs that do much better on some things than other labs. So, for example, bone extract, getting genealogical DNA from bone. You know, they've got in Texas, they've got a fantastic lab called Authorum Forensics. And they're able to get DNA from molars, from bone, and they can match it up to a genealogical. That's a single source DNA. You know you don't have mixtures on that bone and in that molar. Correct. <laughs> and so it's just, a, I mean, there's so many great labs out there. And then there's some that, you know, they're just in it to make the money. And and you'll know what ones those are. Not you, because <laughs> I believe when we spoke last, you said that if Lubbock PD would be willing to transfer the evidence to you temporarily, that this would be done free of charge to them, correct? Yep. They'd only have to pay for the supplies. I do my work for free. Yeah. And that funding would come from outside anyways, because we don't want any excuses. Right. Well, and that's what you have to think about is what is their fear? Number one, they shouldn't be afraid of a cold case for fear that they're going to get public scrutiny because they did what they could at that point in time. Yes. There's no more they could have done. Yes. Number two is it the money issue. Let's take that off the table. Yes. That's exactly what we said. And so if you take those two off the table, we don't want to be embarrassed and we don't have the funding, then what are the other reasons? And then you, you start working on the other reasons. Let's try to take those off the table so we can solve this case. Exactly. One of the things, and I hope you don't mind if I bring this up. Okay. So this is really exciting for me. And I'm hoping it will be for all the families out there who have cases that have not been solved. It just so happens in May of this year that there was a bill that was sponsored. It was by Representative Eric Swalwell, uh, Swalwell 
He's from California, District 15, and it was also sponsored by Michael T. McCall from Texas, District 10. And the name of this bill is called Homicide Victims Families Rights Act of 2021. This is where they're trying to pass a bill to say that these cold cases can be looked at and determined within a certain amount of time to see if there is anything else that could happen so the families can move forward with these cold cases rather than waiting decades because a lot of families want to help pay for it or they want to hire private investigators or attorneys or whatever to help solve the case because they've been suffering and they want answers. There's nothing wrong with wanting answers, but they feel totally left out. And so this way they have a voice. They're actually a victim as well because not only was someone they cared about murdered, but they become victims and these families suffer greatly and, and a lot of families break up and there's a lot of problems because of this. And this way, the victims and the victims' families have a voice as to what's happening. And as long as they follow the chain of custody and they go to an accredited lab, this is how families can help. If they want to get answers, this is what has to happen. And it's it's really a good act. If they wanted to go on uh, the website at congress.gov, it's called Bill Number H period R period House of Representatives 3359. And I think this is very important. This is something that needs to happen so we can solve these over 250,000 yes. unsolved homicides in the United States. And that's not even including missing persons. Exactly. Because we know some of those are homicides. I was just going to bring that statistic. I checked today and it looks like we're about 269,000 wow. unsolved homicides in our country. That's a lot. It's a crisis. It's a national crisis. Well, and it's a bottleneck because we have to work together. And you would be surprised how much information information families have that the police don't know about because say at uh, Debbie's murder, there might've been people that wanted to come forward and say stuff, but because they might've had a criminal record or they were afraid or whatever, they didn't come forward with any information. And years later, sometimes they'll tell somebody. So a lot of things come forward years later and things happen also that happen shortly thereafter a murder that's strange, that shouldn't be happening. And they don't dare tell the police because they feel shut out. Yes. So, you know, working together would be great. Absolutely. Just to retouch on the subject of people being afraid to come forward to law enforcement, that's an advantage that I have or my investigative partner George has. We've seen it firsthand where people have brought us information that they were scared to go to police with. We can't arrest anybody. We can't charge anybody with anything. But what we can do is make you anonymous and pass your information to the appropriate law enforcement agencies so that they can use it in the course of their investigation. And we've done that. Absolutely. And I'll tell you something on the Angie Dodge case, her mom, Carol Dodge, she spent 20 years looking for the killer because she knew the guy that was in prison was not the killer. And she did all this research on her own. And she found out stuff that the law enforcement had no idea about. And she found out about the MVAC. She found out about me. She found out about genealogical stuff through Parabon, C.C. Moore. All these things, we connected with each other. And once we started talking together and we started connecting that case was solved shortly thereafter. Yep. And that's what it takes. Yeah. It comes down to a group effort in so many cases like that. And quite frankly, I mean, we know law enforcement, they don't have all the resources or just the hours in the day to chase down some of these leads or go after these old cases. But I still think they should be willing to accept some outside help from people who do have the time 
and some skills to offer and accept the information that those people collect and, and follow it through. Ultimately, we need law enforcement. You know, like I just said, you and I can't make an arrest. We need them for that. And in the end, they're going to be the ones putting handcuffs on somebody, having a press conference and taking credit. And that is totally fine because the victim's families don't care. No, they don't. Who, you know, who uncovers the tip or which lab detects the DNA or whatnot. They just want some resolution. And one thing we've got to keep in mind as well is police agencies are overworked. Yes. Their caseload is huge. It is so difficult for them to go interview the people and keep up on all these cases and do all this stuff with the caseload they have. Plus, I think Law enforcement agencies across the country are having difficulty recruiting. And so there's all this that's happening and their cans are being tied. So it's very difficult for them to put in the time and the effort and everything. So I think you're right. If we can work together, we can help each other. Yes, for sure. So in terms of holding up in court, what can you tell us about MVAC and your extraction method being admissible in the court of law? The MVAC has been challenged. It's done very well. If you go to the MVAC systems website and if you go to the tab that says, I think it says articles or news, and then you can hit it and it'll take you to all the cases it's helped. So as far as admissible in court with either my method or the MVAC method, it's just a different way of doing things. Let's use the MVAC, for example. So normally what they do is they will take a swabbing and they'll put a sterile water on the swab, and they'll start swabbing the item of evidence. Or if you're at a crime scene, they'll swab up the blood or whatever is at the crime scene. And so that swab has got the sterile water on it so it can get the evidence, and then it's followed by a dry swab usually. And then that swab acts as a filter because that little cotton, the cotton fibers, attracts that, that skin cell. And so then what they do with that swab is they have to cut it in order to extract or take out the DNA that's been trapped in the, the cotton fibers on the swab. So with the MVAC, it uses a sterile solution, just like the swab. But instead of rubbing it, we spray the water, the solution onto the item of evidence of fabric. We let it soak for a minute and then we suck it up and it pulls up. So instead of rubbing, they use suction, a vacuum. And the filter for the MVAC then becomes a regular filter. Instead of a swab, it uses a sterile solution and a filter. Instead of rubbing, you suck it up. And the same would be for the Bardol method. The Bardol method, no swabbing. You use sterile solution and the filter. So mine has been challenged in court, the Bardol method. They named it after me. Right. That was not my doing. I wanted Tesla Einstein, something like that. Right. <laughs> they, they didn't do that. So anyway, the Bardol method has been challenged. And it was all, and this was a really interesting case because a fellow was taking his daughter to school or picking her up and some guy shot him in the neck. He was upset. This guy was upset, shot him. The guy lived, but you can imagine what this did to him. And the guy who shot him took off. And when he took off, he tossed the gun and he got rid of the firearm because he wasn't supposed to have one because he was a felon. And they did find the guy. They did find the car, but the gun was gone. And everybody saw this car. Everybody saw him shooting and shot this guy, but there was no gun. How are we going to prove it was him? 
And so there were shell casings. And so this was one that I, I took the shell casings. I got his profile off these shell casings. And so it did go to court. I had to go and explain all this. And that was a long process. And then after he was convicted, he got, I think, 10 or 12, I can't remember, charges of firing a firearm because that's how many casings there were. Then it got appealed. And my method stood up in the challenge and the appeal, and it won the appeal. It's also been written up in a scientific journal. doesn't have all the details. It gives basics, but it's been written up, and it shows that it's the best method to get DNA from metal. Mm -hmm. And so the Bardell method was actually the best. Like I said, with the MVAC, the FBI did a research on it, and they put that out last year. And it was amazing. I mean, it gets more DNA than anything. It's a technology that is basically the same, but it uses different elements. Exactly. I was going to say, you're really, you are just going about it in a different manner, but you're yeah. essentially using the same materials. Yeah. Is that fair? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So to put everybody at ease, this is both, <laughs> you know, MVAC and the Bardol method have stood up in court. So there's no... No reason to try to use that as an excuse. Right. And quite frankly, after 46 years, I don't see any reason to use anything as an excuse. <laughs> well, and, and you can't keep dragging this on because no. keeping in mind that DNA does degrade, let's bring it more to the present time. Mm -hmm. If law enforcement knew what they could do with their present cases right now, it would be so easy <laughs> to get these solved. Yeah. Now, when you use older cases like Deborah's case, You've got a lot of degraded DNA, plus a lot of the witnesses are gone. Uh, a lot of people have passed on. Original reports might be difficult to find. Maybe evidence will be difficult. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But the sooner you jump on something, the better it's going to be. But on these old cases, you better do them now because that DNA is going to continue to degrade. Yeah. So you mentioned the Family Victims' Rights Act at the federal level. Mm -hmm. But Texas, which is where Debbie was killed just established their own cold case and missing persons unit. And this unit falls up under the attorney general for the state of Texas. So again, just, you know, as you described in terms of the federal program, this is going to be a great precedent, I think, for the state of Texas. By the way, Texas has over 19,000 unsolved homicides, so they really do need some assistance there. Yeah, I think that'd be really good. In fact, thinking outside of the box is really important. So say, for example, Texas has 19,000, okay? If law enforcement were to get together, or even if it was just one law enforcement agency, look, we have this many cases and we want to contract with you to work our cases. You know that those labs doing the DNA testing and labs like me and stuff, they'll give a better deal if you're contracting your work with them. Sure. And so there's always something you can do like that. And I'm just saying, think outside of the box. Don't just say, this is the way it is and this is the way it always has been, you know? It can change. So there's ways they can come together to help this happen and still get the expertise they need, still get the testing done, and start moving through all these cases. Exactly. And again, there are many nonprofits across our country that get donations specifically to help law enforcement agencies that don't have the funding to be able to pay for outside testing. There are many nonprofits across our country that will help victims' families obtain that funding and provide it to the agency. Absolutely. There really are. You need to have different eyes on things sometimes. You get a, a mindset. So having somebody with an expertise in a specific field, see, I'm not a blood spatter expert, but I know people that are. Mm -hmm. So you bring somebody else in that has this expertise. I work with the Cold Case Foundation and they 
have forensic experts all over the country under anything. They're doing case consultations and helping people without charging them anything. And I'm even going to say, you know, it doesn't always take an expert because Georgia and I have found crowdsourcing through social media really helps you think outside the box. Oh, yeah. Because as open-minded as I like to think I am and, and George, at times, like, you do get focused in one direction. And it just takes someone with that different way of thinking to trigger a thought and, you you know, can change your whole direction. And we love that because, again, you need all those different perspectives, I think. Well, you do. In order to correctly look at a case and investigate it. Yeah, you absolutely do. Because what used to happen, and it still does now, we'll have a theory. And then what we do is we move forward with that theory, trying to support that theory. And that sometimes can lead you in the wrong direction. Yes, So you have to get somebody else that can say, well, that's your theory. Now, here's my theory. Yeah. Come up with answers. You know, debate is great. Let's look at this. And and here's my theory. I think this could have happened, you know. And then when you have the scientific evidence, when you have, say, the fingerprints or the DNA, that's when you can start saying, okay, let's see what theory. (laughs) Okay. Now we really got to chase this down. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) exactly. I think it's really important to empower law enforcement, number one, so that they have a good knowledge of how things work when it comes to laboratories and especially DNA. What they're used to doing is they want the meat and potatoes. Some of them are interested in it, some aren't, but they just want to know the basics. Is there any evidence? You know, what can I do with it? So sometimes they're so busy, they want someone to help them with this. And this is why a liaison working with law enforcement, their crime scene people would be a good place to start where they have one person that works between them and the lab and they understand those lab reports. And that's a process. It's not something you learn all at once. And sometimes labs have their own language. Police have their own language. Doctors have their own language. You want to understand the language so you can explain it to law enforcement. Because if you ever see those lab reports, you're going, what the heck does that mean? What is this? Oh, yes. It's like a foreign language. (laughs) And that would be really beneficial for law enforcement because it would take a lot of weight off the detective. I have found out as laboratories do have issues when trying to get a hold of detectives, getting them to call back or getting the communications going. So if you have one person that it goes through, then they'll track them down. And plus... You're freeing the detective up to do the work that they know how to do, and then you, you're you doing the work to help them understand what this lab result is and help them know this is what it means. I'm with uh, my business, Cold Case Solutions and Resources, and it's in Utah. And what I do is I take my experience not only working in a lab, but a crime scene investigator for over 20 years. I can look at your evidence, I can look at your crime scene, and knowing what the lab does, I can bring the two together. And this is why agencies would be so beneficial to have somebody. They can say, okay, these are the items of evidence I'll go for. What do you think? Let's go through these. And and let's do these first. So usually what happens if you give them to the lab, okay, we'll see what we can do. And then you wait, what, six months to a year? Yeah, if you're lucky. And then maybe a year and a half, maybe two. Mm -hmm. And you go, oh, okay, I've waited this long. And and it's inconclusive. I have nothing. I waited all this time. Yeah. And I, and just think how the family feels. Well, you said you were going to do this. Yeah. And so having someone help them through that process is really, really important. That was one thing I want to bring up. A liaison between your investigations and your lab would be really good. I think having a liaison like that is a fantastic idea. I mean, it makes so much sense. It would really help. It would really help alleviate uh, some of the questions they have and their work. Exactly. And I think it would help the detectives stay organized on their cases, too. Yeah, it absolutely would. You know, because it could assist with that. 
So Cold Case Solutions, how do people find you online? Uh, they could go to coldcasesr.com. And they can contact you directly through your website. Is there a link for your email? Yeah, they can contact me and uh, send me an email at francine at coldcasesr.com. The reason I'm Solutions and Resources is if I don't have the solution, I'll find it for you because I do a lot of networking. I know a lot of stuff and I can help you find that. If there's something you need help with or whatever, I'll hook into my people and see. I mean, there's better labs for different things. And and sometimes I might not have the answer and I might not have the solution, but I'll look for it for you. That's so awesome of you. <laughs> That's going above and beyond, if you ask me. Well, I'm doing what I love doing. I've retired and I chose to retire earlier. So I could focus not being on call, you know, every other week. Sure. But focus on the cases because I was getting so many cases. I thought I really need to help these families of law enforcement solve these cases. So I'm just going to focus on the Bardell method and the MVAC. Well, Francine, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to spend with me today and provide our listeners all this amazing information on your new technology and your knowledge and everything else. And I am just so hopeful that with your help, we're going to solve Debbie's case and find her killer. There's no reason we couldn't. Francine provided us with such a wealth of information, which we passed on to the Lubbock Police Department. We were so humbled that she offered up her services free of charge. George and I are not badged law enforcement officers nor forensic analysts who work in a lab. Therefore, the rest of the process with regards to Debbie's evidence is out of our hands. However, we will continue to provide listeners with updates on testing whenever possible. As we continue through this evolving investigation, we are connecting with experts in other areas of forensic science that can provide additional insight into Debbie's killer and the crime itself. Next time on Break the Case. Yeah, there's a lot going on right now. I'm just so excited about this because Lubbock PD reached out to them asking for their assistance on Debbie's case. Some of the wounds are symmetrical, so that would indicate a double-edged dagger blade. I think the initial attack was probably done with the knife held in a ice pick type grip. And uh, the very first wound could have been as he was reaching for her, coming down is where he cut the ear off. Something else that we got some information on was that tire track found in the alley behind Debbie's house. We narrowed down the most likely tire that made that track. It's kind of one of those things, you know, you're hoping you get an email, a phone call, that something's finally broke on this case. And so hopefully we are rapidly approaching that moment. Join AMU's cold case team and follow me, Jen Buchholz, and George Jared on our investigation into who really killed Debbie Sue Williamson. If you'd like to be a part of our effort and follow along, please join our Facebook group titled Unsolved Murder of Deborah Sue Williamson. You can also follow us on Twitter at the handle BreakTheCaseAMU. Tips may be sent to tips at justiceforDebbie.com. Anyone reporting tips is assured confidentiality. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchholz with co-host and investigative journalist George Jared. Senior producers Leachin Cranick and Andy Crow with support from Lisa Tanis. Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. 
Special thanks to the Case Breakers, an investigative partner of AMU. Subscribe to Break the Case on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 